The wildlife and its habitat cannot speak, so we must, and we will. You're listening to the Conservation Federation of Missouri podcast. Here's Executive Director Brandon Butler. On today's episode, I'm joined by Carol David, the Executive Director of the Prairie Foundation, and Ken McCarty, who has a title too long for me to memorize. So, <laughs> try Chief of the Natural Resource Management Section for the Missouri State Parks. That's a good one. That's a good one. Now, how many years have you been with Missouri State Parks? I have been with State Parks for 32 years now. The absolute wealth of knowledge. So, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Carol, congratulations on Prairie Foundation being the Conservation Federation's Organization of the Year this year. We've got a great partnership with you guys, and lately it just seems like Prairie Foundation's on fire. I'm hearing so much about it, and your work is just stellar. Tell us what's going on. Well, thank you, and it was certainly an honor to receive that award and the recognition. You know, people often tell me, what's new with Prairie? And I say, well, Prairie's about 8,000 years old, but we're making new discoveries about Prairie all the time, and we're organizing new events to try to help more people discover and appreciate their prairie legacy. We have our annual dinner coming up on August 5th in Columbia featuring Dr. Quinn Long. He's an ecologist with the Missouri Botanical Garden and he's a technical advisor of the Missouri Prairie Foundation and he's going to be speaking about how do we manage this prairie resource in the modern age. You know, we had 15 million acres of prairie or more in our state. That's about a third of the state in prairie. And if you take into consideration the more open woodlands that we had throughout the Ozarks in pre-settlement times and prairies along the Mississippi River and the Boot Heel, we had up to about 70% of our state was covered in some assemblage of prairie flora and prairie wildlife, grassland wildlife. So native grasslands, prairie, are incredibly important, significant to our natural history, but our economic history as well. But today we have about 70,000 scattered acres remaining of that original unplowed prairie resource. What Quinn Long is going to be speaking about is how do we manage this fragmented landscape in the modern age? We want to help people understand that prairie isn't just beautiful, it is, and it has inherent value. It doesn't really have to do anything for us to exist, but prairie is incredibly important to our cultural history. If you think about the livestock industry in Kansas City, for example, well, prairie pasture helped drive that industry. Think about how important our row crop agriculture is to our state, and so much of it on prairie soil. So Prairie isn't just important to us in terms of wildlife. It's an important part of who we are as a state, culturally, economically. But it all starts with that prairie resource. We're trying to, with the Missouri Prairie Foundation, we own and manage prairie. But we celebrate the and, and recognize the prairie conservation efforts of, of all entities in the state, be they private or public. We've worked with Prairie State Park in the past to help control invasive species on their park. We help provide technical resource and partner with private individual landowners to help them with their resource or conserve prairie, find ways to afford to keep prairie prairie. So if we go back to pre-settlement days, before Lewis and Clark opened up the West, Missouri was uh, a prairie state, really. I mean, we had buffalo and elk and all these wildlife animals living on prairie. And then settlers came in and, and what happened? Where did the prairie go? If you think of Missouri back at that time you talk about, if you can imagine a, an arc across the north part of the state, all across the north from east to west, from all down the western border as being an almost entirely prairie landscape. 
And if you think of the different periods in our history, whether it was largely dominated by the different native cultures that lived and worked the land in different ways, you can think of large prescribed sweeping prescribed fires, you can think of the way they used the land, you can think of the compression of the native cultures as they were pushed west by, by our own cultures and societies as they come through. You can think of the early, early versions of our modern society, which had enclaves of settlement, which brought in things like market hunting, which started to use the land in different ways. Of course, you can think of some of the, the early agriculture events that happened in the you know, 1830s through 50s through 70s. You think particularly the livestock industry, prairies or herbaceous systems, uh, they're, they're rangeland. And that was an early use of the native prairie resource. It was for all manner of livestock that supported those early cultures in our early societies. And that developed through time. A lot of Missouri was an open range state for a long time into our modern history. And that's where a lot of the uses and even pressures that led to, you know, different kinds and versions of grass and landscapes in, in Missouri. And then you can think of those fertile soils that Carol mentioned a little bit ago. And you can think of these deep, rich, black soils that support agriculture across the corn and soy belt, bean belt in Missouri and Iowa and, and Illinois. Those were very rich soils. They were very valuable soils. And they became the root of our agricultural industries. So much of our native prairie is now what we're seeing in cornfields and soybean fields and, and pasture lands. You might think that corn is a native grass, or is a grass, <laughs> rather, and, and you might think it's, super, it's superimposed over where the native grasses and the prairies used to be. That's what Ken is saying, absolutely correct, row crop agriculture, which of course is very important and we need that. Also, demise of prairie through taking fire off of the landscape. So here in, in Missouri, we're at the crossroads where the eastern deciduous forest and the Great Plains meet, but we have a lot more rainfall in Missouri than, say, grasslands as you go west. So therefore, we can support a lot of trees. And so if you don't have fire on the landscape, native grasslands can become invaded with, with trees. MDC came out and did a, a PLC assessment on private lands conservation assessment on my property, and I've got nine acres of cedar that's choked out a glade. So I've got a lot of work ahead of me to to try to restore that to a glade. Well, that's exciting. And But one thing that you've got in your favor is that with cedar, you can cut them and they don't re-sprout or burn them and they won't re-sprout. So that, it is challenging and good for you for restoring that glade. And it's going to be fun for you to see how that responds. We do have a lot of challenges also with the prairies that do remain Invasive species, tall fescue, Cerisia lespidiza, other non-native plants that we've introduced on the landscape that can degrade the quality of, of our remaining prairies. For every you know square foot of prairie that is replaced with these invasive species, the level of biodiversity decreases. I've got a story to help explain this. One of the prairies that we own is called La Petite Gem Prairie near Bolivar. It's only 37 acres, but on a quarter meter basis, if you were to put a, a quarter meter square quadrant down, the Institute of Botanical Training did a plant survey there and found 38 plant species in a quarter meter, which is incredible. The average number of plant species you find in an average oak hickory forest is seven. So 38 plant species crammed into this quarter meter. And then you've got all of these insects, some of which, or many of which, have a very specific relationship with a specific plant. So it's supporting all of these life forms up the food chain. Well, when you replace a lot of that diversity with one or two or three non-native invasive species, you are simplifying the landscape and reducing the level of native biodiversity. 
I'm working real hard lately to learn more about pollinators. And I know, Ken, you're an expert on bees and other pollinators, but I just learned about milkweeds and, and monarchs. And just, it's unbelievable to me that that's the only plant a monarch will lay its eggs on. And there's always so much to learn about these native plants and how they go together with animals and insects. And I think we can probably tie some of the decline in our pollinator species to decline in prairie, Ken. Absolutely. That story you talk, tell about the monarchs with the milkweeds is just one of many, many in the insect world where you have these different kinds of plants that associate with different species of insects as pollinators or for other you know, stages of life history for different kinds of them. So there are, there are a lot of those. And when it comes to having pollinators and you think of the pollinator issues and concerns and interests that we have today, you think that pollinators relate to the species of plants that they pollinate. And one has a lot of pollinators where one has a lot of space for them to find those plants and to support large populations. And you think when it has the variety and diversity of plant life that supports a very, very fauna and you have those pollinators. So so that's what you're looking for. And that's that's one of the issues we have with pollinators today. One of the questions that we have is is across these areas that once supported uh, vast unbroken reaches of savannas and woodlands, all with their hundreds of species of, of plant, plants underneath. If you think find bees, you find flowers. <laughs> you find flowers, you find bees. There's that kind of relationship through them. And this is how they're pollinated. Move out on the prairies and that arc I talked about across all of North Missouri, down all of Western. And if you're a bee, if you're a moth, if you're a butterfly or any other kind of pollinator, and you're looking for a place to lay your eggs, and if you're looking for a place to find the nectar and the pollen that supports the generation after generation of insects, that in turn supports generation after generation of plant, you're going to look for these kinds of landscapes. You're going to look for these native prairies that still exist. And in so much of our world today, you're not going to find them. You'll find pieces of them scattered along roadsides, in gardens, in some urban areas, along fence rows, or on public lands. It's easy to focus on the demise of prairie. We obviously have a lot less than we once had, but with the Missouri Prairie Foundation, we also like to really think positively. Look at these species that despite all these odds, despite all of these changes on the landscape, are still here. And even though this resource is fragmented, there are insects and plants and Henslow sparrows and other grassland-dependent wildlife that are still there, and they are surviving. And we really want to emphasize that these remnant original communities, like I said before, they have inherent value, but they're also important as seed sources to drive the native plant industry. So if we think about all of the cost share practices to improve water quality or pollinator habitat on agricultural land, for example. All of those native plants for those practices depend on seeds from these remnants. So they're like reservoirs of pollinators, they're reservoirs of genetic material, they're reservoirs of these seeds. We're also finding, as so many, like so many things in life, you discover all this richness as the resource is being depleted. The soil microbial community in prairie is the richest on the planet. There are so many species and entire families of microbes in the soil that were just, it's kind of like this new frontier of science. And soil scientists are, are using prairies as these benchmarks of soil microbial communities. They're studying how these bacteria and fungi help plants uptake nutrients. We can harness that information and perhaps apply it to agricultural systems. Maybe we can use fewer chemical inputs. They're like treasure troves. They're biological treasure troves, the, the prairies that we have left. Where are some of the 
bigger public chunks of prairie where people can go experience a prairie firsthand. What we have with the Missouri Prairie Foundation, of course, we're a private organization, but our prairies are open to the public. We're here for the benefit of the public. The prairies that we own range from over 600 acres down to we bought one outside of Kansas City that's only 22 acres. Other prairie landowners are, of course, Missouri Department of Natural Resources with Prairie State Park, which I believe, Ken, is still the largest uh, public prairie in the state that's owned The Nature Conservancy has Dunn Ranch Prairie, which is also very large. That's private, but open to the public. Others, Ken? Well, I'll just hold that question for just a second. I'd say if you want to go see some of these these prairies that you mentioned and in all their glory, the Missouri Prairie Foundation is a great place to start. It's it's easy access to find out where they are, and they truly have some of the best of the best. They're outstanding displays of flora. They're outstanding reservoirs of, of species, you know, pollinators of plants, and so on and so forth. But then, if I move into some of the would move into some of the the public lands, who also are large prairie managers, the Missouri Department of Conservation has a very large number of very high quality prairies large and small, uh, uh, concentrated especially in the western and southwestern part of the state, but also some of those rare types like across the central Ozark Plateau, the highlands in the Ozarks, even down into to Oregon County, for example. We have those examples even in the Boot Hill where people traditionally don't think of prairies, but, but there are examples there. Many kinds of prairies, many across the state, and the Department of Conservation has many. That's a good source. Your Missouri State Parks, with our our mission to preserve Missouri's native landscapes, has made a large effort across the years. One with Prairie State Park, as as Carol, you mentioned, which is about 4,000 acres of native prairie with bison. There are elk there. There are many different kinds and expressions of prairie landscape and prairie fauna, prairie wildflowers. North Missouri, we've done a lot of restoration work on prairie remnants, pieces that still existed. The, The soils might or might not have been plowed. But the plants were still there. We brought those pieces back together at Long Branch in Macon County, Central Missouri, up, up uh, Highway 63. Some fragments up a uh, thousand hills in near Kirksville, Quiver River in the eastern part of the state, where two thirds of St. Louis area used to be prairie uh, many, many, many years ago, and has some relics of that as well. So, so you can find those kinds of things. You mentioned the Nature Conservancy and, and a few other organizations around have some. Now, I've, I've heard it's, it's hard to bring prairie back once it's lost. It takes a long time. And two of my friends that you guys know well, Frank Oberly and Rudy Raceline, are, are trying to do that on, on properties. What is, what is it that makes it so hard to restore prairie? Well, I would say that you can never make a prairie. You can plant prairie plantings. It's like we wouldn't go out and say, well, I'm going to go plant a desert or I'm going to go plant a tundra. We could introduce elements of a desert, but we can never recreate that ecosystem. Humans just aren't good enough at it. However, prairie plantings are incredibly important. We are really support the work that Rudy Raceline is doing. Frank Oberle has really been a pioneer in so many ways with seed collection and prairie reconstruction. I guess, Ken, in the we tend to use the terms prairie plantings or reconstructions. Would you agree? I agree. And I know you told us not to tap on the table when, when we were given this <laughs> ahead of time, but if I could reemphasize that point and tap this twice, <laughs> I would say yes. A prairie developed over many thousand years, and it's an incredibly complex, living, dynamic thing. And to say you're going to recreate one boggles the mind. And just as an example, for the past 30 years, I've had my own project going at home with all I know and have worked with prairies through my career. And, and I've watched it so slowly, incrementally develop that way. 
but still, it's that, that the lesson out of that is that, that there's so much that's involved at the, you know, beneath the soil and the relationships between plants that, that can't be done. It's what makes it so important to hold on to these pieces that we have that are the real thing, that did come to us from the thousands of years in the past in our part of our heritage because not only are they reservoirs for the kinds of, of, of plants and animals that are tied to these native grasslands, but they are our models. They're our sources for, for uh, seed and for understanding how they work so that if we want to try and have prairies that we restore uh, and to replace those that we've lost, we can understand how they work. And that's been a, lot of, a big part of the restoration through the 30 years I've been involved with this and as I've watched it across the state, is trying to learn enough from our existing prairies that we can see what those pieces are and how those pieces turn when they're working right. And when they are not turning, why? And then we can take that knowledge and we can put it to these restorations and these plantings. And for whatever value we're trying to get out of it, we can, we can try and replicate that and provide that kind of service. We can and we should and we are and, and hopefully you know, we'll continue as a state. The more landscape we can cover with native prairie plants, that's going to be improvements for... It's not, it's not the real thing, but you can simulate some of those ecological and environmental functions of prairie. You can't reproduce everything in entirety. But, for example, in 1954, I think it was, John Weaver in Nebraska did studies on how, how well prairie absorbs rainwater, for example, and found, I believe this is correct, in one rainstorm, seven inches of rain can fall on intact prairie and there's no runoff. If you think about how much money we spend on stormwater management, mitigation, engineering, and and we have prairie that can do it for us. And while it's because the the roots can be 15 feet deep, using prairie plants and plantings for stormwater projects, for within farming, like using prairie strips, integrating prairie strips within row crop agriculture to trap nutrients, to help curb erosion. We can use prairie plants to achieve many or address many challenges at one time. They're providing wildlife habitat, these plantings, pollinator habitat, slowing erosion, absorbing stormwater, storing atmospheric carbon in the roots. So we definitely, like Ken said, all of the prairie folks who are working together on this, we want to conserve as many remnants as we possibly can, but we want to encourage as much use of prairie plants and developed landscapes and altered landscapes as we can because there's so many environmental benefits to doing so. Even if it's not totally the real thing, you're still going to help replicate a lot of those environmental functions that really improve life in so many ways. That actually just reminded me, we introduced Carol as the executive director of the Conservation Organization of the Year. Ken, you were also the conservation professional of the year, and it was a second-time win for you. And I remember when they, uh, they brought that up, they said, well, he's won before. And the people voted on him and said, it doesn't matter. The guy's incredible. He deserves it again. So congratulations on that. But that also leads me into Pierre Natives. They were the conservation corporate partner of the year. That's right. So everything that we're talking about uh, as far as being able to get these plants and through your, your Grow Native program, so they're just one of the vendors in Grow Native. Why don't you tell people how they can get their hands on native sure. plants and start? The Grow Native program started in, actually it started with CFM in 1999. It was called, I think, Bring Conservation Home. I might have that, I might not be remembering correctly. 
so it really started with CFM in 1999, and the program went to the Missouri Department of Conservation and the Department of Agriculture as a, a program with two aims, to increase the supply of native plants and to help increase the demand for them. And so those two agencies ran the program, and then in, in 2011, the Department of Conservation approached the Prairie Foundation about taking the program on. As a private organization, there are certain things, ways that we can develop the program that are, that are easier for a private entity. So the Missouri Prairie Foundation has housed the program since 2012. It's not a tax-supported program. It's a program within the Missouri Prairie Foundation. It has its own committee of folks that help direct the programming. They're made up of native plant professionals, seed producers, nursery owners, retail garden centers, educators, landscape designers, and so forth. And so it's a great program in many ways because, one, it's a networking program for all of these professionals. You know, if we really want to get more natives on the landscapes, we need landscape architects and the people who spec plantings to be talking to the seed producers and the designers and the land care specialists so they can all work together and understand what are the best native plants to to use for certain applications. But the program is also, we do a lot of consumer education. We do lots of articles in gardening magazines and news around the state. We have work, We have lots of workshops for landowners and homeowners, gardeners and professionals alike. We produce native plant tags. You know, if you go out to a garden center and you buy a plant and there's a plant tag in there to describe the plant, back when Grow Native started, there weren't any tags for native plants. You know, it's Native plants are blooming seasonally, and a lot of the time you go to a nursery center and it's just this little green plant and there's not a showy flower. So these tags help people like Mervyn Wallace and other nursery owners sell their plants, help consumers understand what the plants are and why they're important. So those are some of the kinds of things that we do with the program. We also have GrowNative.org where we have an online directory of all of our professional members and the products that they sell. So if people want to know where they can buy seed in bulk for, you know, they say they have a property they want to improve for hunting habitat or they want to improve their habitat for pollinators or they're gardener and they live in the city and they want to buy some native plants for their yard, they'll find a, the resource guide on that website. There's also a, a database of that's searchable of native plants. There's native plant plans. There's tons of articles. So it is a big part of what we do. And another thing that we launched two years ago that Ken's been a part of through the Grow Native program, we are also the home of the Missouri Invasive Plant Task Force. Many states have these interagency, interorganizational task forces to kind of be a clearinghouse of information on, on invasive plants and just help, help promote the statewide identification and planning for controlling invasive plants. Well, Missouri didn't have, have that kind of interagency or interorganizational task force. So we created that through our Grow Native program, and it's a, it's a group of folks like Ken's part of it from the Missouri Department of Natural Resources, federal agencies, the horticulture industry, academia, transportation. So all of these people are together in one room talking about how to, you know, how we're how we're going to prioritize how to control invasive plant species because it's not just a a problem that threatens the ecology of our state. It threatens our hunting industry, I'll say. I mean, hunting is a huge economic driver in our state. I mean, you can't hunt deer in an old field choked with bush honeysuckle you can't do it yeah that's what i was going to ask what are what are some of the major invasive species you guys are working against today well it, it kind of depends on where you are in the state like in the urban areas bush honeysuckle is a a big problem and it kind of depends on how 
what was the vector by which the plant was introduced? So like in bush honeysuckle was originally introduced through, through horticulture industry. Cerecia lespedeza, you find a, a lot of grassland areas. It was brought in to control erosion. I actually read an article. The department was bragging about plantings of that back in the 50s, like for quail habitat. Like we just completed our lespedeza planting. Well, good intentions, but we learn as we go. Yeah, um, unintended consequences. Yeah, so bush honeysuckle, Cerecia lespedeza. What else would you consider, Ken? Yeah, you know, I just think if people are trying to imagine where and how are these such a, you know, a problem, Anybody who's driven roads to St. Louis, to Farmington, to Columbia, and all these others, and looks into the forest and imagines the photographs that might appear on a calendar, which shows all these stately oak trees, and looking off through the distance and the understory, and maybe it's green with the sedges and the woodland grasses. Instead, you see a wall of uh, bush honeysuckle, and a wall that precludes the regeneration of even those trees that make up that forest. And you think, what is the future of the forest if it's that pervasive and that, that problematic? So for us in state parks, that's, that's a huge one. We're a big question mark for the future about what our forest will be. When we move out to the prairies, it's Cerecia lespedeza, uh, which is which is a huge issue. Some of our glades, I know you have a glade you said you're looking to restore, mm-hmm. and and that's one that can come in. It's allelopathic. It makes its own little natural herbicides. It'll crowd things out that you want to see there and that were native and historic to that. You look to some of the wetlands and you think of canary reed grass. You think of giant reed. You think of many others that are, are suited for that, and they too crowd into these wetland systems and push other things aside and becomes a monoculture of that. So so those would be some of the ones that are most problematic for us. But then you can go on and on. There's a whole list of weeds that are important to agriculture and to natural systems, both so spotted knapweed, you know, showing up more and more across the state. Kudzu's long been an issue and a concern moving up from the south. Autumn olive on a lot of our prairies, especially our, re- our restorations. You know, we have some a few scattered across the state, very high quality native prairie remnants, but we have a lot of, of native prairies that are in some state less, you know, some some state where they could be recovered or restored and they're weak and they're vulnerable to these kinds of, of invasions of, of non-native species. And those are where it's particularly problematic. And I think you mentioned autumn olive, but you can look on so many remnants where they are, the sod's weakened, the soil has changed, and the, the plant life is not as aggressive. And so what you see cropping up, even in a fire program and a good management scenario, will be autumn olive. They get bigger every year and more fill in the space between those, and they grow up and more fill in the space between those. And and it's a tremendous issue for those of us who are trying to restore or manage prairie systems. One of the things that we're doing with the task force also is identifying potential. You know, we don't want to have another bush honeysuckle. There are more species moving in all the time. As, as Dr. Quinn Long, who, as I mentioned, is going to speak at our dinner on August 5th, has said, and he, he he's also on our task force if you're in a in an apartment building and the apartment next to you is on fire, are you going to wait till yours is on fire to leave? Or are you going to get out right away? And it's the same thing with inv- are we going to wait till this terribly invasive plant that's crossed the border in another state? Are we just going to wait till it gets here? Or are we going to try to prevent it from degrading our quality of life? And Ken mentioned, you know, recruitment of, of trees. Again, I, I want to emphasize that, and we really want to we really want to reach out to and, and bring in other partners on this because, like I said, invasive species don't just threaten our ecology; they threaten hunting, cattle grazing. I mean, there is a plant called Caucasian bluestem that is invading a lot of cattle pasture that is not palatable to cattle. So, if if cattle producer has you know a pasture and a quarter of it or half of it has this Caucasian blue stem and the cattle aren't eating it, there's a direct correlation to weight gain. 
of that animal, you know, of their of their cattle. And think about our fantastic timber industry and oak regeneration. You can't have oak regeneration if there's no sunlight reaching the ground because there's bush honeysuckle. So there's a lot at stake here for our for our state. There's a lot of things going on by different agencies, but we really want to step it up and bring more resources to this challenge that our state faces. So I was talking to uh, Jason Jenkins the other day, the coordinator from Missourians for Monarchs, and he, he basically said that your lawn, if you just have a, a fescue grass lawn, is the equivalent of a, a parking lot to insects. And if we could just change the aesthetic of what people consider beautiful back to tall grasses and, and native grasses, I said, man, I, I'd be the first to join that coalition of not having to mow my yard anymore. I just, I don't like wasting time on a lawnmower, but I live in a subdivision and don't have the choice. But how did we get there? Like, I don't even know that much of a difference between what people call cold season grasses and, and warm season grasses. And I, I know we're trying to get conversions done on, on some ag land. So what are cold season grasses? What are warm season grasses? Where are we at and where do we want to be? There's different pathways of photosynthesis. The cool season uses one pathway for photosynthesis and the C4, which are the warm season grass. That's a different process of photosynthesis. But in kind of an easy way to think about it is, you know, if you're driving in May and you see cheatgrass is already in seed, that's a cool season. It's done, mo- it's done all its growing in the cool part of the year. And it is done. It is set seed. If you look, go out on a prairie, you'll see flower heads of grasses are just now emerging. So they are warm season. They are, they are built for our hot, dry climate in Missouri. And so they're palatable to cattle through the summer months. They are drought resistant. In a nutshell, that's a, a non-scientist uh, perspective on how to so, describe the two. So why did why did these fescue grasses or these cool season grasses kind of come to be the norm when our native grasses would just come up out of the ground as it is? You can think a little bit back into our history. If you could go back to the, the idea that Missouri was about a third prairie, about a third savanna to woodland, which is timber but with the grasses underneath, you got two-thirds of the state, which is really in a range condition. And you have a livestock industry that developed over that through time. And, and then you went into open-range grazing as populations increased in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, a lot of pressure. And one thing that we found through time is that our native prairie systems, our native woodland systems, these native grasses and the plants associated with them, are not resilient to heavy, constant pressure. Bison herds roaming through, gone coming back, elk nibbling through here and there through time. There's a lot of forage resource, but it's not. It, it cannot sustain heavy concentrated use, which through the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s we imposed. So what happened? It became very depauperate. It became very stressed. These these palatable grasses started dropping out of the scene, and the unpalatable, think the broom sedge, <laughs> came on in its place. Now with the advent of of, of cheap fertilizer. And, and the discovery of how productive some of the non-native cool season grasses could be, they were imported. And they could grow on our soils very well, and they could grow especially well if you could enhance the fertility level. And then even if they were used in a heavy concentrated livestock system, they could be managed to sustain themselves, and they could be improved with fertilizer from year to year and soil nutrients and you know, manipulation. So, so in that way, it became very important for our livestock industry and it replaced the native system that was there. And then in terms of like, our lawns, I think it's, it's a European aesthetic. I mean, lawns are, do great in England. There's tons of rain. You know, you don't have to irrigate. And so we kind of 
brought that aesthetic to America. But I do think it's I th- think it's changing slowly. One thing with Grow Native too that we do is, you know, not everybody wants big blue stem in their front yard. A lot of people don't find that attractive, and that's fair. We really do like to emphasize that you can have formal front yard natives. There are natives that are more formal, that are, you know, don't spread as much, and we have that information on our website. You can have natives in a corporate landscaping, and it can look formal, and it can look maintained. And that's important because we really want people to accept this new aesthetic. And I think when you mentioned the milkweeds and monarchs, that's that's like the gateway to understanding ecological function. Once you see that caterpillar on your milkweed, you're going to want to see more. You're going to get addicted. And then if you find out, I could grow Indian pipe vine on my fence, and that's going to, that's going to be food for the, these gorgeous black and red pipe vine swallowtail caterpillars. So I'm going to be able to grow monarchs, and I'm going to be able to grow pipe vine swallowtail butterflies. Suddenly my garden isn't this static thing. I'm growing these living, beautiful, flying jewels. And then you're going to go out there, and then you're going to see, oh, what's eating this plant? And, oh, there's an insect eating this other insect. And, and bit by bit, I think people are going to get really hooked on that, that new dynamic of seeing that their garden, their yard, is full of this, this whole backyard ecology. And that's really exciting. And it's also important for children If you have natives in your yard, you don't have to drive far away for them to experience nature. They can just go out in the yard and find these caterpillars eating food and then seeing birds eating the caterpillars and taking them up to the nest and and learning so much just by observing. Well, I think it's neat. You mentioned the urban areas. I think that's where Doug and John and the team at Pure Air does a lot of their work is in municipalities and with contracts and cities to to go in and replace, I guess, grasses that you would typically mow with natives, and, and then they don't mow them because they are doing a good environmentally and ecological thing and, and also saving time and money on the mowing practices. Absolutely. For exa- Forest Park is a great example of the use of natives. But what's also important is educating people that it's intentional, that it looks this way for this reason, and you know we're having this planting to improve water quality so on and so forth. So I think a lot of things have to come together, the right plant for the right purpose, um, some interpretation to help the public understand why these plants are being used. And then then you get more acceptance. And then you have people, oh, I I want that in my property. Oh, I want that in my yard. Um, I'm the same way. I, I want that in my yard right now. So how, you know, I can't turn my whole, I mow about three acres of grass. And like I said, we're in a subdivision where everybody's on three to five acres and covenants say, keep your grass mowed. And but I know I could convert a small section. Instead of having a vegetable garden, I could have a, a wildflower garden, couldn't I? You can have both. And yeah. I, would inc- I would encourage you to have natives, native plants growing among your vegetables. Then you're going to be providing more pollen and nectar for those insects that are also going to be pollinating your vegetable plants, so too. What, walk me through. So I need to stake out an area, and then what do I do to kill the grass that I have and, and convert it? Well, I think Ken is really, he's, he knows a lot about saving ecosystems but killing bad plants. So I'm going to let him address that. Well, recognizing I'm used to doing it on a large scale in the state park, <laughs> or on my 50 acres at home, uh, but still, if, if I were to go about that, that as a, as a problem, there's you know, any of several ways you can do to eliminate the sod. And a lot of those are herbicide or it might be tilling or in some fashion to do that. And then it's to, whether it's, it's to 
call Carol or to look at some of the literature that's available or you talk consult with some of the, the people who are in the business of providing the plants and knowledgeable about it. There are certain plants that are ideal for garden settings that, that provide a, a seasonal show where you can begin with ones that bloom early in the season. As they come out of bloom, you have another series that comes on. As it goes out of bloom, you have another. So there's always something blooming in there. And then you're going to, you're going to see what those plants are, and you're going to have some number of those that's right for the space that you have for it. And then you're going to make a decision. Do I want something that's really heavy and showy, just a native version of marigolds and zinnias? Or do I want something that's a little block of a, of a prairie? And then you're going to start thinking, so do I want kind of early successional, very showy wildflowers that are native and attract lots of pollinators? Or do I want to start blending in some of the native grasses, particularly in a small space, some of the shorter statured ones? There are native cool season grasses that are short statured, come on early with a really brilliant emerald greens. They're in a really nice growth form. Some of the sedges that are associated with our native prairies and native systems are gorgeous in plantings. And you put them into a, a garden planting, that they, they have a beautiful form and nice fine foliage and so forth. So you can have that. Uh, some of the native grasses like little blue stem or shorter stature, prairie drop seed. There's a list of these. So whether you want to be really strongly flowered or whether you want a little bit of a native prairie in a corner of your yard, you can go either way with that with the right kinds of plants. And we mentioned earlier a little bit, but there's so many programs available. Um, I've just learned a lot about this. Like CRP has a pollinator mix program that you can get it's like number 42 it's like cp42 or something uh equip is another one that you don't have to be a farmer to apply for these you just have to have rural recreational land or or land that's available and so there's cost share and, and money from the government available to help people build these kind of habitats that's right and they're federal and state programs and i think the first step for for anyone wanting to do these things is to contact their local private land conservationist these are professionals through the missouri department of conservation and we are really fortunate in missouri to have this incredible division within our wildlife agency to to assist private landowners and so there are these private land conservationists throughout the state, and they're going to be familiar with all of those cost share programs. In addition to what, to follow up with something that Ken said, you know, after you've prepped an area, say you have fescue lawn and you've demarcated the area that you want to convert and you, you kill that, many of our Grow Native professional members who are seed producers, if you just go to our grownative.org resource guide and then you click on seeds, a lot of the seed sellers have their own, you know, they'll have their own websites and they'll have um, seeding rate guides, you know, how many pounds per acre of different seeds you need. That's really helpful. And then information on, okay, well, you seed this, then what do you do? You have to be patient. Prairie ecosystems took thousands of years. You're not going to have this weed-free, gorgeous prairie planting overnight. We need to do things like mow high to knock back the competition of weeds. So you're getting sunlight down to those prairie seedling plants, I would say maybe three years is when you're going to start to see a really nice planting. Would you say, Ken, sometimes a little bit earlier? What a lot of people will do, we'll we'll take some of the early successional kinds of native plants and and really seed them heavy early on so you can have a quick wildflower show like the gray-headed coneflower and things like that. And then some of the others that take a little longer uh, will come on in time. In my own, I I had lead plant. It's a favorite of mine. And I planted it on year one. In year 15, I saw my first plant. Uh, so that's just an example of how. But you said something interesting there just a second ago, and that was weeds. And what's a native plant? Yeah, yeah. And why I ask is, so I went in on my new land down in Shannon County, and we opened up a couple of acres that was just complete forest habitat, just overgrown forest. And that's 
where I'm building my cabin. We just did that bulldozing work in October of last year. And now I've got waist-high fields of plants. And my dad's like, you're going to kill all them weeds? And I'm like, those aren't weeds. Those are native plants. How do I know if it's a native plant? Or a native weed, because it came out of the ground. Right, and yeah, I should, wa- I should watch my time when I'm talking about weed. But when I said weed there, I meant natives that are annuals. They're kind of like the pioneers. You've got this bare dirt, and they're going to germinate really quickly. They're going to set seed right away, and then they're going to die. They do play a really important role, those native weeds, because they can take up space that a long-lived perennial invasive might take up, but they're not going to outcompete your long-lived native perennials that you want. How do you know the difference? Hey, Shannon County, I'm com- <laughs> I'll come down anytime. Because I was super excited. I had some cone flowers come up. That was that was super neat for me. But the rest of them, I truly don't know if they're the plants that I want there or not. You know, one thing I think we're all kind of guilty in the prairie community of kind of apologizing for how slow prairie plants are to become established. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but I think we need to stop saying that because you might have ragweed that's super tall and here your little coneflower is this big. Well, it's spending time putting energy into its roots. So it is establishing. We just can't see it. Remember, these are plants that evolved in a hot, dry climate. So they're spending energy on developing roots and then they'll work on being showy later. So it's like they're they're investing in their infrastructure <laughs> You know, and that's why they're perennial, and that's why they can be perennial, is because they have these extensive roots. So they are be they are establishing. We just can't see it. Yeah, I'd like to make a point too that transitions. We started this conversation with a lawn, and then we transitioned to Shannon County in a native woodland. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an important concept to pick up on there. You're not always starting from a lawn. You're not always starting from zero. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you go into a lot of our native settings in this could be pasture in the Sheraton River Hills in North Missouri, or it can be your, in your woods in Shannon County. We can be surprised how many native plants persist. And if you're going a step beyond the garden setting in size, and if you are going into an area that is not just a lawn, but actually has a native soil with native propagules, one should explore first what's actually there. There are a plethora. There, it could even be 50 or 70 or 100 different kinds of native wildflowers that exist in those woods you talk about. They're just suppressed by the lack of fire, the closing in of the woodlands, and all you do is open it back up and give it the light to the ground, uh, remove the litter, and you can be surprised at what comes up in those settings. And then you manage that, and you know that's adapted to that site. You know it'll do well, and you don't have to wait years. And I'll, I often think if you're not in a lawn, if you're not in a crop field, you should think first of what's actually already there. Yeah, absolutely. And I was speaking of like starting from scratch, but you're absolutely right, Ken. And I think it's going to be really cool for you, Brandon, when you remove those cedars to see. I agree completely with Ken to just watch and wait and see what's there before you, you know, maybe introduce any seeds. You've mentioned it a couple of times now. And one of the coolest things I've gotten to do in kind of the, the habitat work arena is burn. And yeah. fire plays an important role. In habitat work and I know there was a time where fire was rampant and then we tried to get people to quit burning and now we're trying to get people to burn in a proper manner. Talk a little bit about fire and, and how fire is a tool for our landscape. Let's start by saying as we often do we describe a natural system a prairie as a list of species but let's try and sit and think of a natural system as being a collection of process through time. 
and and these are very dynamic kinds of systems. And those processes are what sort species to become a prairie or a glade or an oak forest or a bottomland hardwood you know, of that nature. So fire is the key dynamic natural process that shaped historically most of Missouri's natural systems. Where the soils are right, the landform is right, and there was a fire regime that came out of the xerothermic, very hot, dry period 7,000 years ago into the modern time. There was fire frequently across these. So you can think, what does fire do to a prairie system? When it's that intense and it's very frequent, it will prevent trees from being able to grow because it's just too much heat. They cannot take that. It also, and this is real important for prairie and prairie managers today, even the garden you might be trying to do, is prairies are very productive and they build up a lot of thatch. Prairie seeds, prairie plants need light to germinate. So the prairie, the fire cleans off that thatch and it brings light to the ground and it provides conditions that the next season's generation of plants can utilize. They get the light, they get the warmth, they have the space, and the next year's prairie will emerge. Now, where landform or other circumstances cause that fire not to be quite so intense, lo and behold, it doesn't kill all the trees. And so what you have instead are some trees grow, but they have to be very fire tolerant. And so what you find are these very thick bark shortleaf pine, post oaks, blackjack oaks that will survive on the fringe of the prairie. And so you see this transition from Missouri's prairies into Missouri's savannas, into Missouri's woodlands, and into the forest as the fire regime becomes less and less intense. But it's important because it sources those species in, in, across the landscape into those different kinds of communities. Ken has done a lot of research on timing of fire. It makes a difference when the time of year that you that you burn. And it's really important that Ken has documented all of this information. Ken's going to write an article about it for the Missouri Prairie Journal. He wrote one years ago, and this new article is going to have draw upon subsequent years of research that you've done. Right, and, and others. Uh, you know, fire, we, we came into this, the first, the first fire on a prairie in the Missouri State Parks, was shortly after the first one in the state at all, and that was in 1972 at Quiver River State Park. From that time, we've learned so much, and, and we went to systems that were not restored, and we were trying to restore them. Now we have excellent models, and we've learned so much about what fire is and how to apply it on the landscape. So, so there is a, a lot to that, and it's kept going because it's so important. Uh, we could not have prairies today if we did not have fire to maintain them. Now, there are surrogates for that. You can hay, you can mow, but in some fashion, prairies and most of our other natural systems develop to some degree in kind of fire, and they're important to maintain if you're going to have them. And there's a lot to learn. It's a very complex system. It's very dynamic. And sure, yeah, there's a lot to learn. We still have a lot to learn. One thing that we do with the Missouri Prairie Foundation is we have a one-day prairie school, and it's an on-the-prairie workshop where you can learn about prescribed burning and seed collection, safe uses of herbicides, and our upcoming workshop is July 23rd on our newest acquisition called Noah's Brown Prairie. It's just outside of Joplin, and there's information about this on our annual dinner on August 5th on our website, moprairie.org. We also, for those who want to learn from a lot of people in one day about using native plants for landscaping, is we have a Grow Native workshop, in the field workshop, on August 1st in Columbia. And there'll be nine expert speakers, everybody from Wayne Loveless with Forest Keeling Nursery, who is going to, I mean, having him there talk about oaks, that's that's amazing. And then we'll have Scott Woodbury from Shaw Nature Reserve talking about establishing seeded landscapes, exactly what you were just talking about, Brandon, of how do I go from this lawn or this old field 
full of non-native plants. How do I go from there to this beautiful prairie planting? He'll talk about that. And that's at grownative.org, more information about that's that. August 1st in Columbia? August 1st is this Grow Native workshop, and August 5th is our annual dinner in Columbia, and then we've got some other events there, too. Grow- like I said, on fire. you got a lot going on. <laughs> well, the Missouri Prairie Foundation and everybody associated with Prairie Aid say we're a really passionate bunch of people. I mean, everybody in conservation is. And there's a lot at stake. It's really important to do as much good conservation work as soon as we can because there are so many challenges on our landscapes. This is about, this isn't just about, you know, saving something beautiful. This is about improving quality of life. This is about improving the economy of our state, using our natural resources in a smart way. We have climate change. We have conversion of habitat. We have so many pressures. It's really important that we have landscapes that that are sustainable and conserving our our original habitats, improving altered landscapes with natives. These are really important things for us to do for right now and for the future for our children and our grandchildren. I know we say that all the time, but it's really important. And that's why we work so hard and have so many events to help more people learn this. Prairie makes you happy. Native plants make you happy. And I think you're you're doing a great job and you're, you're being very successful with it. And we're starting to see some collaborations and, and partnerships come together. We mentioned Rudy Raceline earlier, and here's a guy who's done very well in business, but his passion now is, is prairie landscape. And he's working with Smithfield Foods, one of the largest pork producers in the world, and they're trying to restore native grasses on, on lands that have been converted from prairie, and, and now they're trying to do what they can to, to bring those back. So I think we're starting to see it in the big picture sort of way. But what I like about it, and talking to all my hook and bullet friends out there, because that's really what I'm rooted in. I, I mean, I think most people know that. I'm a hunter and fisherman first. But this is like the evolution of caring about the outdoors, like I learned to care about largemouth bass and white-tailed deer and turkeys early. But as as you grow older and you become more involved, you know, knowing your wildflowers and understanding the landscape and how everything works together and then of course what you just said, conserving it for future generations and making sure that they can experience the same not just the same hunts and, and fishing trips, but the same landscapes and, and the same ecological wonders that, that we have today. I mean, one of the conversation points people always say, you know, would you rather go into the future or would you rather go into the past? And for me, it's just hands down. I would, I would go back to pre-settlement days, like early 1400s or something, and just see what this country looked like. I, I just read a book called American Serengeti by Dan Flores. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. I learned about it on Stephen Ranella's Mediator podcast. And it just talks about how our prairies were comparable to what you can still see in Africa today, of all these different species, predator and prey, roaming together across vast landscapes. And, and that's what we had here in America with buffalo and elk and mule deer and antelope and grizzly bears and wolves and everything living together in this incredible ecosystem. And Gosh, I just wish I could see that. I know. I think that would be amazing. But I think what's equally exciting is seeing how human ingenuity is applying these biological resources with new technology to solve these problems, like what Rudy is doing. That's super exciting. And I appreciate what you said about hunters and anglers. But I think we all need each other in conservation. You know, I don't I don't come from a hunting background, but my son just shot a turkey this spring. And that was thanks to National Wild Turkey Federation and CFM. And 
I really got a better sense of how patient you have to be and, and when you hunt, you know, learning about all the time you have to spend waiting for a turkey and how much you observe while you're hunting. So hunters and anglers really care about their pursuits and they know that we have to have clean water and we have to have good habitat to perpetuate that if, that if, tradition. So if there's a good thing happening in, in the hunting and fishing world right now, I think it's this movement of locavores mm-hmm. and, and you know, field to table food and like we're really starting to see a conversion. I think hunting kinda of took a bad path for a decade or so into this television Hollywood hunter market, but I think it, it reached a point of backlash and people like myself and, and others that are real passionate about hunting recognized or starting to recognize or some of us have recognized for a while now like how bad that was, how bad of a message that was. And and now you're seeing hunters that are the backcountry hunters and anglers group that's springing up all over the country it was a western thing and you know hunters are rallying around public lands and around clean water and, and making sure our habitat is intact and you know that's a big word in a lot of conservation organizations now habitat so the crossover is happening i think and you're seeing like you said your son who's coming from more of a ecology background family into the hunting world and a guy like me coming from a hunting background into the landscape world and you know state parks and it is it's a big melting pot of conservation which is what's so much fun about being at cfm too because it'd be easy for me to to work for a hunting and fishing organization but i get to learn from people like you and i really enjoy that yeah i think we're all incredibly lucky to do what we do with our colleagues that we have as you know both ken and you know it it's a lot of hard work but i think we all help bolster each other and we celebrate each other's successes and it helps us continue to keep working hard to protect what we love and what we want to see perpetuated. Missouri is such a resource-rich state, and I think we're always grateful for that. We have so many natural resources compared to some of the states around us. We have such a, a tremendously diverse and astute professional resource community. We have a very engaged and in public and interested public. We have a very strong hunting and fishing community, and all these things come together in the kind of things we've been talking about today. Can, real quick again, give give people some state parks they can go to to see some great examples of prairie. So go to see some prairie. I would first and foremost recommend Prairie State Park where you can see it at a landscape scale. You can go in uh, the time the elk are bugling and sit by your campfire and listen to elk bugling in the distance. You can take off in the morning for a hike, see a whole suite of the grassland birds. You can encounter bison to good or bad (laughs) it might get the adrenaline up a little bit depending on the situation but anyway at a landscape scale with a visitor center with professional interpreters on hand a lot of interpretation that's available to help understand and appreciate what's there develop trails and so forth that's that's premier there's also one of the state's two remaining large bottomland prairie systems exist at pershing state park with a boardwalk and overlook again interpretation and i highly recommend that as well. There are remnants at the Quiver River State Park for North Missouri. Uh, The Long Branch State Park has several hundred acres where we found the last vestiges of a prairie before it disappeared and we spent the last 30 years bringing it back and and it's an outstanding again with trails and it blends into that savanna and woodland as well and Hahatanka if you want to see the transition where, where the Great Plains in western Missouri turned into the eastern forest 
Hahataka. It does not get better. It's Hahataka. amazing. Yeah. And I would certainly recommend that to hit the natural area trail, the, the acorn trail through the natural area. From the Missouri Prairie Foundation standpoint, I well, they're all gorgeous and beautiful and full of full of bird life and but in recognition of this year, 2017 being the 40th anniversary of the Natural Area Program, I'd especially recommend two prairies that, that we own that we're very proud to have be part of the Missouri Natural Area System, and that's Golden Prairie outside of Golden City in Barton County, uh, 630 acres. It's also a national natural landmark. It's an important bird area. It's in a conservation opportunity area. It's just It's got a prairie stream running through it. It's absolutely gorgeous. And La Petite Gem Natural Area outside of Bolivar, the Frisco High Line bike trail goes through the prairie. So those are a couple. Linden's Prairie that we own it's pretty close off of I-44 near Mount Vernon. It's just an unbelievably gorgeous prairie. The, the prairies that we own, the Missouri Prairie Foundation, you can go to our website. We have Google Earth Maps to all of them. And a number of them are located very close to prairies owned by the Missouri Department of Conservation. For example, we recently purchased Pleasant Run Creek Prairie, which is immediately adjacent to two other prairies that the Missouri Prairie Foundation owns. But they're also, those three prairies are in between Bushwhacker Lake Conservation Area and Buffalo Wallow Conservation Area. So we want to help increase the connectivity between all that land and conservation ownership. I encourage everybody, invite everybody to visit prairies owned by state parks, by Missouri Prairie Foundation, Missouri Department of Conservation, and others. I think Dunn Ranch, we have the Nature Conservancies and NBC holdings up in northwest Missouri near Bethany, another outstanding example of, of a tall grass prairie system, and I would recommend that. There's the Public Prairies of Missouri is a great catalog, and that can be available. You can also look at the Missouri Natural Areas Directory. That also lists a number of very good prairie remnants scattered across the state in our different natural divisions, and that's a good resource for where we... Well, it's always hard for people to believe, but we've cracked an hour already. So, Carol, tell people how they can get involved with the Prairie Foundation, and then again, make sure everybody knows about your dinner. Great, thanks. Go to moprairie.org. You can learn about how you can become a member. If you want to support our work financially with a donation or becoming a member, that would be fantastic. You can volunteer, but... You can just come and visit our prairies and enjoy them. We have lots of events. Most of them are free. We have hikes. We have campouts. We have our annual prairie bio blitz on one of our prairies every summer. Yeah, please check us out. And August 5th in Columbia, Missouri, with Dr. Quinn Long speaking at MPF's annual dinner is a great way to learn about prairie from an outstanding speaker and enjoy the fellowship of other prairie enthusiasts and learn a lot and have fun. Ken, Carol, thank you guys very much for coming in today. Thanks, Brandon. It's been a pleasure.